tell me about this body, this uh, golem. Well, it has no augmentations, no, you know, superpowers. I knew you wouldn't want to have to adjust to something new. Not after 94 years in the same body, same face. Ah, I see. Everything is new, though. Everything works. And the brain abnormality is gone. For good. Extraordinary. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton riding an exocomp like a horsey. <laughs> is it uh, Peanut Hamper? <laughs> it is Peanut Hamper, indeed. <laughs> and we're here this week to tackle Star Trek's biggest debates. Cam, this is something we've touched on. We've kind of touched on controversies, but Star Trek also brings up a lot of these sort of philosophical notions here, and I think we can dive into it. We often will kind of touch on this when we come across certain episodes, but you know, I, I think I, I'd like to scratch the below the surface to a certain degree with some of the biggest things that have gone on in Star Trek, where I think fans are still talking about it and the, the decisions of the characters and also the decisions of the writers and how they frame things and whether there is supposed to be a right answer or a wrong answer, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, well, that's one of the specialties of the franchise and what always separated it from the other, you know, spacefaring adventure shows, you know, of its time. I'll kick it off with this one, and I think fans and the writers are on one side of this, but I think it is a debate that uh, is still worth having here, though. But, Cam, is Kira Norris a freedom fighter, or is she a terrorist? Hmm. What is the difference in these situations? Well, and it's so much... Um... You know, I think of that Living Witness episode of um, Voyager with the Doctor, right? Like, it depends what side you're looking at it from, right? Like, to a Cardassian, clearly a terrorist. But from the Bajoran side, a freedom fighter. And so... <sighs> so is there an answer? Or, it, like, it, it? I just perceive it as this one not having any particular absolute answer, you know? Well, I think what makes it muddier than some, though, is... When you look at the Star Wars universe, right, with the Rebels, I, I don't think it's hard for the audience to come down on the side of the Rebels over the Imperials, right? Like, because while the, uh, you know, the Cardassians aren't that much cheerier than the old Empire, the tactics the Rebels go to are much cleaner. Whereas the things Kira does, the show never hid the fact a lot of them caused a lot of you know, collateral damage or a lot of, um, you know, war crimes. Like there's a lot of um, more gray territory that, um, you know, her and her fellow freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on how you want to interpret it, wandered into. So I think that actually does make this more of a debate than if we were debating whether Luke Skywalker broke bad. The fact of the matter is, is like she is responsible for the death of civilians, um, Bajoran civilians, also like Cardassian children's that uh, children that, as you mentioned, were part of the collateral damage. If she's you know bombing a facility that housed you know military members, we we really saw that brought to the forefront with uh, uh, the darkness and the lights. You know, I think that was probably the time that they really tried to grapple with this from the other perspective, from the Cardassian perspective, where we encounter one of her victims who is kind of on, I, I think, uh, a deserved, like, uh, revenge campaign here in, in this situation. And unfortunately, it looked as if Kira Yoshi uh, could have been the collateral damage in this situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> no kidding. I always wondered, though, like, did they kind of write themselves an out with tackling this character and that when you're presenting, you know, Goldicott and the Cardassians as the opposition, or even that character from Darkness and the Light, who's um pretty terrifying at a certain point, like, does it make Kira just sh like shine a little brighter as a character for us to sympathize with over the other, you know, the other examples? 
Well, the fact of the matter is she is a point-of-view character, and also history is on her side in that the Bajorans are eventually victorious. You know, she was somebody fighting for the freedom of her lands. Uh, she got a lot of people killed along the way, but uh, maybe... I, I have no doubt she can justify and compartmentalize everything that she was responsible for, if not for the fact of the matter that, you know, Bajor is now kind of a, a free planet at this point. Um, but the, the, the issue is she used tactics that we would also ascribe to terrorists in order to do that so can maybe maybe she's both yeah well i think that's one of the great things about deep space nine is that it was willing to present characters like this and that's something the you know the previous trek shows wouldn't have really done and it makes kira a character that's continually i think fascinating to examine regarding any conflict going on in our own real world we can look at the uh, parallels between the cardassians and the bajorans in real world parallels and i think kira is an incredibly complicated character because of this and i understand people who have a hard time maybe connecting to that character at a certain point because the show doesn't i think to its credit shy away from some of the things she committed i also wonder though look she's not the taliban here and i think there is a, a very profound reason as to why you know the, the taliban do not share our values you know they um are subjugate women they don't believe in democracy Kira is all about freedom and democracy that is what she was fighting for so we do have a shared set of values i just don't think that we would necessarily share her methods in realizing those values well, it reminds me a little bit of that saying that you can quote better than I can about the um, serving in paradise. What is the um, line? It's easy to be a saint when you're living in paradise. Right. And Kira doesn't. And so you yeah. get that parallel going both with the McKee as well as um, what Kira went through in her, through her own experiences. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm glad that we were able to tackle this. What is next up on the biggest debates in Star Trek? Okay, I think I've got a good one that I haven't heard. We've definitely never brought it up, I don't think, before. And I don't see it brought up too much, you know, in discussion forums and what have you. So we have that episode of TNG, one of the early famous episodes, Measure of a Man, which is so much about establishing why Data deserves his right to exist as an independent individual. So let's flash forward to Season 7, Descent. And we have Lore, who is ultimately deactivated and taken apart. <laughs> um, here's a question. Should Lore have been a character because of what Data's gone through through his own trial that we would have to look at Lore as someone who needs to be perhaps approached with rehabilitation versus being treated as a machine to be dismantled and, you know, have the um, emotion chip sent off to its owner? Yeah, is he not considered sentient because he's quote-unquote defective and data is not defective by whose standards i i don't know yeah it's like the starfleet decision of this is the moral right and lore doesn't fit into this it, what if somebody's a a murderer what, what if they're a serial killer um in our society yeah they can be imprisoned uh but they they're still considered to be sentient people and it, it's I, I I do wonder if there's kind of like maybe a broader debate about sentience that we can wrap this uh, into that I, I was thinking of because I, I did allude to the exocomps. What makes them sentient? What What is it that uh, makes, you know, the doctor from Voyager sentient versus, I don't know, Cam, would you consider Moriarty to be um, sentient in that he should be able to travel out and about as much as he wishes or is he property of starfleet and the federation i always looked at moriarty in particular as a character who he is essentially a very intelligent computer program that's figured out um sort of its world but is it sentient that's the question like to me like sentience is about kind of a feeling or having instincts and per being able to perceive things in a way that is very much tied to I guess the human world or, or just the natural world. I don't know that I think I can make more arguments for this. You know, one of my favorite arguments when you talk about the exocomps that's brought up several times in quality of life is that um, they'll make an argument against the exocomps. And then data's like, 
but aren't I the same? (laughs) (laughs) And they do that like three times and it always makes me laugh because it makes characters incredibly awkward because they're like, well, uh, yes, Data, we we admire you, but a little bit of a difference here. And I do look at Data perhaps differently than I do the Exocomps or Moriarty. Well, okay. If Moriarty is Starfleet property, if Moriarty is not sentient, what makes the Doctor from Voyager um, sentient and somebody who can be free to, you know, roam about the galaxy as he sees fit? Yeah, I know. The Doctor's are uh, another really good example of this where they very much like with their Datas and Doctors to push it into that kind of uncomfortable sphere where it can't be easily classified. Um, I feel like maybe the Exocomps, you know, there's a little more of an argument maybe, but... Um, the Doctor, I would agree, like, the Starfleet property part 100% exists within the first couple seasons of Voyager. When the mobile emitter gets brought in, I feel like that's where it gets a little more complicated. Because it becomes a character who has the ability to wander around and essentially create a life for itself. I don't know, like, where do you come down on this? I think you and I tried to rationalize this and that maybe it is the mobile emitter which is powered by 29th century technology maybe that was just kind of the magic sauce there that helped that character take that leap um somehow he like that character changed more than any other character throughout voyager's run so Mm -hmm. i can buy the fact that maybe in those first three seasons you know the doctor is not quote unquote sentient and then this technology you know, made him that way. But then I also think, like, what if they never got the idea for the mobile emitter? I think they still would have treated this character moving forward as if he were sentient, as if he were um, a, a person who is responsible for his own decisions and has the right to make decisions such as departing the ship to go become an opera singer. Yes, people, that was actually an episode. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up. Yeah, I think it's so much tied to the spaces in which that character can exist. When he is tied entirely to the med bay, he's essentially operating as a piece of med bay equipment. Yes, he may have a personality. Yes, we may find him more charismatic than a tricorder. But ultimately, he is a part of that that particular space. I think it is the ability to move outwards. And yeah, I mean, the 29th century tech... That's kind of a magic wand in some ways. It can do anything. We just don't really even know what it's capable of. So (laughs) I can entirely wrap my head around, okay, once he has this, he becomes a superior form of computer intelligence that for all we know in the 29th century, you know, well, I guess we haven't really seen on Discovery yet really prove this, but um, that maybe they can just make computer life sentient. I I don't really know. But um, it is an aspect of the Doctor I think is interesting. But I also wonder if it was in some ways an easy answer to that question just by bringing in sort of that magic wand. Bringing it back to lore in this situation, where do you come down? Like, if Data is sentient, why isn't lore? Or is he? And and Starfleet's just violating his rights. I think either way, something like Starfleet is in the wrong. Because I don't think you can treat Data and lore any differently. Yes, Lore may have a you know a programming that is making him behave like a psychopath, but to me, if you're going to consider Data to be a life form who serves on a ship and has his own life, then Data, then Lore, um, if he is guilty of crimes, would have to be treated as a you know an individual prisoner, like someone who has to go and perhaps go to New Zealand uh, and serve in a you know prison <laughs> colony, or they would have to bring in. Um, you know, specialists to try to figure out how they could maybe assist Lore in living in a, you know, in the world of Star Trek, in the, you know, in the Federation. Maddox finally gets his day. <laughs> maybe Agnes Gerardi can reprogram <laughs> Lore in season three, um, in season three Picard, because I just think Descent, I'm not going to lie, it did not leave a bad taste in my mouth at the end when, when I watched that episode and they deactivate Lore. Yeah. I'm like, ah, whatever. He's a he's a pretty bad dude. I can live with this. You know, whatever paves the way for B4, my most favorite character. <laughs> but, um, but I do think when you really examine Measure of a Man and what Star Trek is saying about Data, it makes Lore's fate a lot more complicated. Well, look, the 
Dr. Sung made the argument in the episode Brothers that, Lore, your positronic brain just isn't as developed as Data's. That's why you can't, you know, uh, have the capacity to absorb this emotion chip. So then I'm thinking, okay, well, if, if that's the argument, that Lore is just doesn't have a positronic brain at Data's level, why is it that the exocomps get to be sentient, but Lore can't be? Exactly. I was thinking the same thing because lore is much more advanced than the exocomps. Yeah, yeah. So, as you said, Cam, either way, I think Starfleet's wrong here. Yeah, yeah. Which, I think that's a constant theme with Starfleet. <laughs> and with the exocomps, too, like, uh, when I see them, I have the same attitude as I do with Moriarty. They're very intelligent machines that are able to um, essentially problem solve and determine threats. Like, I entirely by that as being what's going on here. I, I don't look at them the same way I do as data. I'm sorry, exocomps. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, uh, Cam, I, I'm going to jump on over to a, another TNG-related one here. Uh, and, and, and stay with me. I, I, it's uh, it, it sounds as if I'm trying to be funny, but I'm not. I think it is a serious issue. But we think about the whole Leah Brahm situation in the holodeck. We also mm. consider an episode like Meridian in which Quark is trying to scan Kira's body to create a holographic replica of her so that a client can um, have sex with this hologram. Um, I think this brings up like a kind of profound debate. And I, I don't know. Okay. I think we're both on the same page here and like, um, no, that this isn't right. Like this is quite wrong, but Ron Moore, and I wonder if he regrets these AOL message board posts from back in the day, but he went to bat for this argument. He said, look, if it's, you know, one person in a hollow suite and holodeck, what does it hurt the person who, whose, you know, body and face they scanned? It doesn't hurt anybody, but I, I, I think it is kind of, um, a violation of people's privacy and rights for this sort of stuff to go on within the Star Trek universe. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Ron Moore now, many decades later, is probably like, oof, <laughs> wouldn't yeah. have said that nowadays. Um, yeah. And it also, yeah, it, it's just an uncomfortable situation here. Um, but I guess in those days, I don't think actors had likeness rights, did they? I don't really know. Probably probably not the way that they do now, you know. No, I, I, I remember there's a situation where, like, Elliot Page was offered, like, uh, a, a role in a video game. Like, they wanted to scan his face, and he declined. And then they just made uh, somebody who looked almost identical to him. And mm, yeah. so he ended up going and suing that uh, video game for quite a lot of dough. So, yeah. Yeah, it's the sort of thing I think nowadays just the term likeness rights would be used a lot in an argument against Ron Moore about this. Well, okay, let me ask you this. And I'm not trying to make light of this situation, yeah. but do you think that there is a market for historical figures that people would have sex with? And is that wrong? Like, what if there's like, <laughs> like uh, uh, an Isaac Newton, like that's, <laughs> you know, like, is that wrong, Cam? Oh my god, take a bite of that forbidden apple. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> thank you, folks. Thank you. I'm done for this week. Um, <laughs> the Isaac Newton one is particularly amazing <laughs> that someone has this great fantasy that they need to relive with uh, Isaac Newton. Oh, we all have kinky cosplay, right? It gets so weird, too, when it's like public figures, right? Because... Mm. Um, of course, you know, I'm sure if you scour the internet, you probably don't have to dig too far to find, you know, animations or drawings in some, you know, obscene manner of famous people. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I don't know that you can control. So it comes down to, I think, maybe a moral issue. And I, I don't think it's particularly right, personally. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's, the person is not giving you permission exactly. to do that. Yes. Yeah. And what I would be considering is, would I be okay knowing that maybe a hundred years from now, like somebody would be scanning the historical record of Tyler for this purpose? You know, like I, that would make me uncomfortable. I would not consent to that myself. And I don't, 
maybe in Star Trek there should be a mechanism where like people that are okay with that they I don't know you know how you can be check off the organ donor box on your driver's license maybe that's something you can check off for future generations uh, <laughs> now you know when they tackled that particular story it was the 90s different yeah. different world do you think we could ever see Star Trek do something like that again and look at it more from a you know modern as of today perspective I okay I don't think they handled it awesome back in the 90s and they kind of made a joke of it in meridian uh with the kira's body with quark's head deal yeah and i think nowadays i just think about how toxic people are on social media and if you tried to tackle this storyline nowadays it would just i i think you're creating more problems than you're solving <laughs> by, by trying to have a philo philosophical debate about this issue yeah, um, it would definitely be a controversial episode. Um, and, it, and it would be centered on one of the aquatic Zindis, I believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, now, uh, sorry, jumping back to the Leah Brahms one. The Leah Brahms program is maybe a little different um, in that that's a case where it's technology that's been established, right, as a problem-solving um program yeah that jordy manipulates correct he does change her programming uh yes yeah because the kira one you're like right out of the gate you're like uh-oh this is especially because you have quark doing it to me that just underlines it's morally wrong <laughs> never never aside with the morals of quark but um the jordy one is yeah um because a lot of what's going on initially is um jordy just being attracted to this uh, problem solving program which as we all know Jordy's in love with machines and technology uh it's a common theme but um peanut hamper it's, man yeah it's like at what point does it become really morally questionable and i i would assume it probably is when he starts manipulating the program to serve the kind of the fantasies he has it, now okay she when she discovers this she has a very cutting remark which was mm -hmm. was it good for you and I believe Jordy denies having physical relations with his holographic girlfriend. But are we to believe Jordy, though? Uh, do you believe Jordy was telling the truth, if I recall correctly, and he denied having physical relations? I don't, hmm. I don't know. Like, again, like, the problem with that episode as well <laughs> is it's written in the 90s, and they keep underlining Jordy as the sympathetic figure in this whole argument. So I did, I also think back to an episode like The Perfect Mate, where if you look at Patrick Stewart's acting at the very end of it, where he doesn't say anything, but he reacts in a way that is very subtle. And I think you walk away from that situation knowing that he did have sex with that uh, quote unquote perfect mate played by one Famke Jansen. And that's something he really should not have done in that situation, knowing how it was really just going to make her life kind of miserable. And um, that was done within the bounds of 90s television. I just wonder if they were a little fearful of, of turning Jordy into an all-out creep in this situation. I would say he was always um, wandering right up to the line. It's yeah. <laughs> a lot of times. So maybe it was that we don't want him to come across as unlikable. I think one of the things the show did, and... Um, we can also say this is a bit of a problem with older TV is they would portray characters who did things like this, maybe not necessarily in the sci-fi realm, but in the real world kind of realm as well as kind of these like, um, romantic guys, right? Like Jordy just wants love, right? And that's where it gets also problematic because that's not the sort of thing you would probably portray nowadays. I would love it if LeVar Burton's ringtone was you saying, Jordy just wants love, right? <laughs> I also wonder, though, you know, you're saying about Patrick Stewart, you can really read it on his face in that scene in The Perfect Mate. I wonder what we would walk away from that moment with had we been able to see LeVar Burton's eyes. Yeah. You know, I wonder if they could have figured something out in that situation. And like, you know, OK, you're in the holodeck. Why couldn't Jordy have had a holographic projection of eyes go over his visors in that situation mm. there because he is living this kind of fantasy 
with this fake girlfriend. Maybe that could have just been kind of a one-off gag they did just to let, you know, LeVar Burton kind of stretch a little bit more in terms of acting. I'm sure he would have been more than happy to <laughs> not wear the visor on those holodeck scenarios. And you'd think it's something that would have popped into their minds. I mean, I'm sure there was at some point maybe a discussion, but it just seems like any chance you can get an actor to emote more is a good thing. Yeah. I, I just, it's, you do feel bad for some of those actors that just like caked in makeup. And in the case of LeVar Burton, I think it's, I think it was, a, he goes back to saying how exceptionally tough it was to act if you can't do any sort of acting with your eyes. Yeah, because you can look at the work of like Tom Hardy, um, not Nemesis, but you look at what he's doing in like Dunkirk or The Dark Knight Rises. He's able to do a lot with just his eyes. The mouth is not as expressive. And unfortunately, LeVar Burton did have a much more of an uphill there and that it was very difficult to get across emotions. And I think that's why Jordy comes across as cold a lot. And in scenes with like the Leah Brahms, you know, argument there, it's hard to connect to where he's coming from. I bet he, uh, LeVar Burton was really, really annoyed, you know, after next gen wraps up its run in 94 he goes to the movie theaters he sees jim carrey acting in the mask where his uh <laughs> mouth can just like blast open his tongue rolls down onto the onto the table you know going auga and like lavar burton's like that's the acting i wanted to do on star trek the next generation he also wanted to wear the same zoot suit <laughs> yes he's like the yellow colors match come on <laughs> engineering gold it is <laughs> Somebody stop me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's next up on your list here? Okay. This is kind of a, maybe a silly one. It's one we've joked about, but I actually think there's a bit of a discussion we could have. And that is about the salamander babies in Threshold. Oh, okay. Okay. It's something, you know, people go like, oh, those poor salamander babies, they left them behind. And it's something that fandoms always kind of joked about or, uh, you know, rolled their eyes about the episode. But what, here's the question maybe to take away that, is interesting to talk about is what was the responsibility of Janeway and Paris in the situation? I think the responsibility is that you bring back those salamander babies off this alien planet, bring them, uh, try to do something with them. I, I think they, they do have full responsibility. What, what is going to happen to these entities that are on a planet that is not their natural ecosystem whatsoever? Like, how long are they actually going to survive? That's the key thing, I think, because you can look at them as being lizards, like they became lizards and lizards reproduce in a different way than humans. Um, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of, um, you know, mother iguanas cradling their young. They tend to, you know, deposit eggs and move on. Turtles do this as well. So I don't think it's necessarily a moral wrong that these giant lizards would have their babies and then leave them behind. But I think what you're underlining is the key argument here, which is the completely alien environment. Like, I don't know. It, that's where it becomes a much more, I think, complex issue because um, these are not natural lizards. Um, these are lizards created by de-evolving due to breaking a warp 10 barrier. Not, not de-evolving, but accelerated yeah. evolution. Right, right. Which um, doesn't make any sense in the way that they explain yeah. this. Like, it's not... Neither one makes sense. Yours yeah. is correct, but mine makes just about as much sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, when you create a life form that, like, doesn't have a home, what do you even do with it? I think they should have brought it back onto the ship, put these bad boys in, like, some aqua tanks, and I don't know, look, maybe uh, if uh, Neelix got, you know, a few sheets to the wind uh he could have cooked them up and uh, mess hall one of those days i don't know that's dark that's real dark yeah. <laughs> um, well, okay let, let me throw this to you do you think that there is a possibility in like some like really funny writer on star trek discovery says you know what it's been you know 600 700 years of these you know uh life forms on this planet in the delta quadrant it's time we go and visit them and see, you know, what this species is like. Um, are they taking on more human characteristics? Like, what is their own mythology? Do they continue on this accelerated evolution sort of, like, bent? Like, I, I wonder if there is kind of a funny story to be told there in which you can get a giggle out of fans that get it, and then I don't think you necessarily have to confuse some fans that 
aren't super familiar with all the backstory of Threshold. I would love to see this on Discovery, but I also think it's very unlikely to happen on Discovery. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, 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 but it would not shock me if Lower Decks did something with this, where we ha- do have a time jump, so we can look at um, this, you know, these um, the salamander babies further down the line. So I think that potentially is an example of something that could happen. I think there's something of value here. I mean, they created a new life form, at least within the confines of the time they live in. So what is happening with these life forms on this planet? I think that could be actually really interesting to to look at, you know. And I think if this episode was popular and people liked it, we would have a follow-up. Okay, I was I was listening to the official Star Trek podcast this week, and uh, they had a guest on the show, uh, Dr. Erin McDonald. Uh, we've seen her at panels in Vegas, but uh, she is the science consultant uh, for the Star Trek universe right now. And she said that she's watched Threshold into the double digits. She kind of likes that episode. Well, if she's watching double digits, she definitely likes that episode. I wonder if, you know how in fandom fans have permission to hate certain episodes of star trek or certain movies you know and you're not allowed to hate other ones i think people um have given fandom permission to hate threshold but i wonder if there's uh, enough people like you and i kind of coming around saying that this is just kind of like a a wacky fun sort of episode that may be worth a bit of a revisit i just still can't wrap my head around the idea of someone like hating an episode this crazy because there's like bad episodes that are really boring but an episode like threshold or sub rosa to me there's so much value because they go so you know far off a field well the reason i found this one off putting back when i saw its first run was it seemed to kind of break a lot of the rules of the universe with you know jumping to warp 10 and like okay well now that you accomplish it the reason you can't really pursue it is because there's the risk that you will evolve at an accelerated rate as if like there is a predestined route of evolution that makes absolutely no scientific sense by the way and then they leave the babies on the planet that made me really angry that just like that put me over the top and i think that's what you're alluding to here is like that is Mm -hmm. kind of maybe the most disturbing element for many viewers Mm -hmm. yeah so I think a lot of people just roll their eyes at these salamander babies, but I do think there is an interesting discussion to be had about Starfleet's responsibility to those life forms and in what what form that takes. Yeah. Okay, Cam, jumping over to kind of another big philosophical debate, but uh, we've scratched the surface here, but what about Picard's decision to send Hugh, who has had a taste of individuality, back into the collective rather than inserting a virus into him that would no doubt destroy the entire Borg collective. I understand Picard's argument is, who are we to destroy an entire civilization? And the Borg, while our enemies, and we don't want to be a part of it, they are a civilization. On the flip side, he did cost billions and billions and billions of more lives by deciding not to do that. Yeah, in many ways, it's like the Joker debate of if Batman just killed the Joker, a lot of lives would be saved. Um, And I think the problem with this one, too, is that the way that time has shown is that, well, it all turned out okay-ish because, you know, the Borg were weakened over the events of Voyager. And then as we see in Picard, they're still in a questionable state. So things turned out okay. But we didn't know that when Iborg happened. And I don't know. Like the thing is when you have the Borg who are existing entirely by grabbing other members of other species and manipulating them to become a member of the Borg collective, that is a moral wrong going on because these people are not giving their consent um, to become Borg. So short of Picard launching an effort to rehabilitate all these Borg, I don't know that I necessarily think he would have been completely in the wrong with, uh, you know, finishing the Borg, as it were. It's just, I also think about kind of the aftermath. And, you know, you have yet another attack on Earth with regards to first contact. And then, Cam, just watch that horrifying sequence in Dark Frontier from uh, Voyager, the full-length episode there. 
you know, like there's just so many millions, billions of lives probably just um, sapped away because of and sucked into the collective because of Picard's decision. Like, I, I think he... I think he made the wrong decision. Like, and I say this as somebody who wants to have respect for all civilizations, but the Borg will not pay you that same respect. And if their entire goal is to obliterate you and other civilizations, I think you you can make the argument that you should obliterate them first. But also, what are the Borg? Strip away the people that are, you know, uh, taken over by the Borg, what is the Borg even before that? Like, that's the thing. With a lot of these alien species we look at in Star Trek, you know, you go back to the old days of, um, you know, Kirk versus the Klingons. We can look at Klingon society as a very specific thing and understand that there are differences that maybe could be worked out. With the Borg, like, I don't even know what the Borg is without all the drones and all these people that have been, you know, subsumed into the Borg. I, look, I, I don't think Picard really furthered the Borg mythology much. I, I should say Star Trek Picard. Um, mm. But I still think that there is a story to be told if, you know, after Voyager's finale, maybe there is kind of a, a drift within the collective in that there are different factions of the collective that carry varying levels of this collective consciousness. You know, um, it's not all one collective consciousness. Maybe there are splinter groups dozens of them they're they're competing for geography maybe there's even like an alien species that um they worship the borg you know uh they uh seek to be uh, assimilated you know and that, that that's kind of a dilemma that you know maybe somebody there has to go through about maybe they don't want to be assimilated like i think there's like fun stories to tell still about the borg even though it's it does kind of feel by the time we got to the end of voyager that they did run their its course and by the time we picked up again in, in Picard, I just I was just like, oh, there, there's really nothing interesting to say about what's going on here. Could we see the Borg grow beyond the need to um, convert other life forms? Like the Borg could establish themselves as a continually evolving, you know, um, artificial intelligence species. It's maybe um, join our club if you want to and... All the drones here, they're all here because uh, they gave consent kind of deal. Yeah, like maybe they're like, maybe we don't want to rely on Frankenstein monsters walking around. Maybe we can do something better. Uh, okay, yeah. Well, uh, describe that for me. What do you mean? Well, in the sense of like maybe the need to convert like physical life forms is just over. Like they realize that that is not necessarily the future of where their culture needs to evolve to and the um the borg mind works out a way for the machine life to continue without the need maybe they can like create their own flesh or something like they don't need to convert already existing life forms so like no drones coming from other civilizations but maybe it's kind of the uh, the collective consciousness just living on the cloud uh, from here on out Sure. And they yeah. can 3D print some drones when they need them. Sure. Okay. Cool. Cam, <laughs> uh, what's next up for you, sir? Okay. I have uh, one about, I guess it starts in the episode Mirror, Mirror. But ultimately, it really comes down to um, Starfleet's role in, I guess, affecting the outcome of the future of the Mirror Universe, where we have Kirk, you know, um, talking to Spock and kind of persuading him to uh, rebel a little bit against the Terran Empire and ultimately institute reforms that will weaken the uh, Terran Empire. And this is something we're going to see over the course of these Mirror Universe stories is often our Prime Universe characters flipping over there and affecting outcomes to what's going on with the Mirror Universe. And do they have any right to be doing this? <laughs> well, uh, does this qualify as violating the Prime Directive? And like you're interfering think, yeah. with the natural evolution of another society, even though they might be warp capable. It seems like it does fall into that. And I think something that Star Trek falls back on maybe a little too much is presenting a society that's like, well, clearly this is bad according to our own moral code. So it needs to be changed. Yeah. But the Terran Empire is going to evolve the way it's going to evolve. And it's not like uh, Earth history was uh, peachy keen for all those many, many hundreds of years and, you know, has its own share of problems now. So 
why is the Terran Empire not allowed to evolve on its own? I do you think that our own universe uh, has been interfered with by um, mere counterparts over the course of our history, Cam? I'd like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Hitler was actually from the mere universe. Maybe. Maybe. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. No. It, look, I I, I think. Uh, the, the continued efforts to jump over whether it's um sure you've got the schematics of the defiant we'll help you fix her up and get her running to fight the uh the threat of mere wharf you know like that sort of stuff you're like um maybe i should not be complicit with these sorts of dis- decisions moving forward yeah it does seem like they always say it's kind of okay for our heroes to have these sort of effects on the mere universe but God forbid Vedic Boreal pops over, or Mirror Boreal, I should say, pops over and might cause some problems. Or um, the Intendant, immediately they're like, oh my god, this cannot happen. We need to stop these people. And it's like, well, hello? Do you <laughs> like, think that they could make a legitimate argument for like refugee status, you know, coming from the Mirror universe? Hmm. That would be an interesting story I would like to watch. I mean, I guess... We got, we didn't get that with Giorgio, but we could have. Um, I, I mean, I would never rule out Kurtzman Trek going back to the Mirror Universe again and maybe bringing some other characters over. So uh, I think it's possible and I think it would actually be a really interesting story to tell. Yeah, I think maybe the closest we got was Mir Burial, even though uh, his intentions weren't uh, pure in that situation. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I, but here is where we debate now okay so you bring in you allow one mere refugee because you know he's being persecuted by this these evil alliances well wouldn't you be welcoming in trillions of other people that are being persecuted within this universe i would have to think so it doesn't seem like it's all rosy living in the mirror universe for many yeah yeah so then i think eh, maybe the federation would clamp down on this refugee status granting yeah and what would it mean if like people kept encountering mere universe versions of themselves uh as refugees <laughs> it would be weird it would be very weird um i'm sure you'd run into all sorts of problems in your society um i think that's why they often try to uh at least in the older days keep the mere universe real locked down as something we just don't talk about yeah true and i mean where do you stand too on um michael burnham pulling the emperor back into the prime universe and potentially changing what the future of the mirror universe would have been well uh, okay I'll, I'll address it within the context of the story being told but outside of it like they the writers clearly just did not want to lose michelle yo so it was done more for kind of external purposes as well which okay i, I get like uh michelle yo is a treasure uh mm-hmm. within the uh confines of the storytelling of the series though uh, it doesn't like she should not have done that though like they're like um that said did she do something necessarily wrong like she saved someone's life and it was somebody who looked a lot like her own sort of mother figure as well like i i can understand burnham's motivation for doing such a thing but she was clearly bringing in somebody she knew was evil right yeah yes she definitely did so i don't know where, where do you fall in this uh question <sighs> I know the argument would be made that, well, the Emperor was about to die anyway because um, Lorca was about to, you know, take over and what have you. But it feels like a decision very much driven by a selfishness and guilt on the part of Burnham that potentially causes real problems in her world and also could potentially affect the outcome. Yes, it seems like um, George O's going to die. We don't know that, though. The outcome isn't written yet. So it, it does feel like, um, you know, kind of upsetting two worlds for the benefit of one character. Yeah. Um, Cam, uh, next up here, uh, something I want to address. Uh, episode like Second Chances. You bring on, you know, uh, Tom Riker in this situation. Uh, the the philosophical debate, though, that I want to have is uh, not whether or not who is the real Riker, but um, Cam, would you like a double of yourself? Would you be able to get along with this person? That is the philosophical debate I want to pose here. Um, for me, hell no. If I met my own twin or my if I had a double, 
uh, I would not enjoy uh, being in my own company. Believe me, you've been in my company before. And I, <laughs> I, I, I totally understand like Will and Tom's reactions to one another. Yeah, um, I don't think I would like a double of myself. Um, I think even just the like... Uh, I, I wouldn't either. Yeah, um, like, and I think just having just someone pop up immediately who is like a physical clone of you and like it's different than twins like when you're born as twins you have a relationship with someone who looks similar to you if you have the that type of um you know twin situation but i think when what if you're triplets (laughs) well that too but quadruplets also apply in all the other (laughs) tuplets oh wow you really um... uh predicted my my follow-up questions just then (laughs) quintuplets septuplets (laughs) all of it but um it would be very alarming to be in a Riker situation where a character is showing up fully formed at the age Riker's at. And um, the only thing I think I would be able to wrap my head around would be if there was very recognizable personality differences. If it is like a, a real double, like I mean a real clone with similar affectations and personality, it would be incredibly upsetting and <laughs> something I would probably need therapy for. But um if it felt like it was a completely different individual, then it would be weird. I'm not going to lie. It would be really weird, but I think I could deal with it. Yeah. They just, they just look like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I guess the biggest personality difference here is one ended up a Maquis sympathizer behind Cardassian bars and is likely killed. The other is living his best life, making pizza on a gorgeous planet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, yeah. Um, Hmm. Yeah, Riker didn't seem too happy about having a double, period. No. And, well, Tom Riker didn't seem happy about it either. <laughs> Just think about this guy. He He's thinking like uh, Starfleet is writing about him in history, about the, the savior of this planet that uh, got everyone to safety, and they're probably singing songs about him. Nobody knew that this guy was on the planet for eight years. No one knew whatsoever. No one cared. Nobody was trying to mount, you know, rescue missions or anything like that. Like, that must have just... Upon hearing that news uh, arriving on the Enterprise-D, that must have just torn him up and made him resentful inside. Should they have, upon finding Thomas Riker, sent him to another ship, period? Like... It was very clear that Riker didn't want to, you know, make a <laughs> make a mission of connecting with Thomas Riker and putting him on a path to future success. Should they have just sent Thomas Riker somewhere else immediately? You mean like, because he, he spent, I think, like a week or two on the Enterprise. Um, I think, no, because I think Tom Riker had unfinished business, not with his double, but with Deanna. And I don't, I think Starfleet should recognize that that this is a delicate situation and maybe he has a right to reconnect with a an anchor of sorts after being detached from all society for an extended period of time i I bet they thought about that and they said you know what let him spend time with his former partner who happens to be a therapist as well yeah yeah i suppose so just the complications that seem to come out of that scenario oh, yeah. are <laughs> sci-fi soap opera, baby. Cam, <laughs> yeah. well, you, uh, you have another one you want to share? Yeah, you know what? While we're talking about doubles, let's dive into it. God help us. Golem Picard. Yeah, this was one that I uh, wanted to discuss as well. Is, is Golem Picard really Picard, Cam? The well, show is framing it as if he is. That there is no difference. That he got a quote-unquote mind transfer into a new body. And so he is Picard. I don't buy it. He's not Picard. He has identical memories. They copied his memories and put it into the body of a synthetic android. Yes. And did you see that interview quote? I can't remember who said it. It was about a month ago. Um, It might have been the Akiva Goldsman interview, actually, where they talked about you know, will you be delving into, uh, you know, Golem Picard in season two? And he's like, no. Uh. <laughs> and it was like, oh, like it was very clear that uh, this was not a journey for the character that the writers were looking to examine in terms of what happens if Picard merges with an artificial life form and how does that change the character? 
I did not get the sense that's going to be the reality going forward. I wonder, the, the one thing I can cling on to hope to is that maybe, you know, Q comes in as a deus ex machina of sorts and it turns him to flesh, thereby kind of undoing the entire point of season one of Picard. And I don't, so I don't see them doing that, but I... I just, it feels that they don't really want to acknowledge something that is very significant because I think if they did, you, you can't call the show Star Trek Picard. You have to call it Star Trek Golan Picard. <laughs> Which I'm not against. <laughs> yeah, okay. STGP. <laughs> I would love to see that giant billboard ad, you know, <laughs> in downtown Vancouver or something like that. The returning adventures of Golem Picard. <laughs> look, look, if they could rename Enterprise Star Trek Enterprise, I bet they could rename Star Trek Picard Star Trek Golem Picard. And actually, I have the perfect artwork for it, too. It's a picture of Picard as we know it. Holding hands with the golem. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I, 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 you know, you, you are painting a picture for me. That, that's exquisite. But I agree with you. It fundamentally changes what the show is because, and maybe that was the intention of the writers to just shake up um, what a Picard story could be, uh, even if they don't want to apparently examine what the ramifications of this are. But, um. <sighs> It's just weird because it is a show about aging, regret, um, you know, the decisions you've made and how they've impacted where you sit now. And is there life left when you reach the advanced age Picard's at? And I am open to seeing those really tackled in a way that maybe draws me in more than season one Picard did, because season one Picard didn't really grapple with them in a ultra interesting way. But I think once you just switch over to this, where it's like, well... Now you're basically a machine. You have a lifespan. Um, there you go. And so it's like, I, I'm worried they're going to continue to have, well, Picard is still having aging concerns. And let's continue to delve into <laughs> Picard aging only because the writers wrote in a, you know, basically backdoor escape plan for, well, he's still aging normally. I, and, and why is that? Because he's programmed to. And it's just yeah. kind of like, so it, this is not Picard. I, I think the writers want us to think of it like magic, you know, and like his, it's not a mind transfer, it, it's his soul. And, and I think in like a fantastical sort of um, genre series, yeah, you can make the argument that someone's soul hops into somebody else's body and you, you still get to be that person. That's what makes you who you are. But if you're, uh, if a copy of your memories, which I, I know we're already getting in, you know, moving from sci-fi to magic at this point, but if a copy of your memories are implanted into uh, a robot, that doesn't mean that the robot is you. That, that, that is not the same as a soul. That, that is programming. Those are ones and zeros right there. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, Mr. Burns in the future with the head in the jar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. running away with uh, Smithers the dog, um, <laughs> which I would have loved a Picard series that followed a Picard that looked like that. Um, no, I, I agree. And I just don't know why they made this decision. I, I get why they want to set up a, um, maybe a merging because you saw the data, or sorry, uh, well, you saw that Picard, the whole arc of the season was about data and, you know, Picard's relationship with the androids, what happens if Picard gets put into kind of an advanced android body. But part of me also wonders, you remember that device that fixed ships just by, you know, thinking happy thoughts? The magical ocarina, Kim? Yes. Part of me is now wondering if the reason they introduced that whole concept was to essentially establish this society could create magic, basically. And so, hey, if this can do that, then the golem is Picard. Either way, I think those are two stupid ideas. Like, oh, and it's not yeah. interesting writing at all. And it's the kind of writing that really frustrates me from a storytelling perspective. And I'm hoping desperately they pull back on that in season two, because uh, I don't know if people dug that. Uh, the golem Picard, I think, you know, that was maybe a little more controversial with people. I think some liked it, some didn't. But I didn't hear a lot of support for the magic, you know, tool thing, whatever okay. it was. Well, you, you say that now, but wait until Bejazel, we find out that she got a last-minute mind transfer, and uh, she returns in the form of uh, Golem Bejazel. <laughs> but also, it also raises a uh, whole other uh, can of worms in that 
well, if we can transfer Picard into golems, is that the future of Star Trek? Is transferring aging characters into golems? Why not? You know. Yeah. Why not? Like, there's absolutely no argument you can make now, now that you've already done it once. So it's just, ugh, this is dumb. And the thing is, like, um, Battlestar Galactica addressed all of these issues in a far more interesting way. Like in, in terms of Cylons and, and what it means to have kind of a, a soul versus a consciousness. What what a body, a, a flesh and blood body kind of means in this world of synthetic robots. Um, they've done nothing interesting with this idea here in Picard. And all they've really done is just like make me like cringe at, at this. And because I, I get what they're trying to do in that you have a story about discrimination against synthetic beings so what happens when our main character becomes that which was discriminated against? Then our sympathies automatically fall in line there. I'm just like, okay, I get it. It's it's not nearly as deep as you might think it is, writers. Would it have worked better if Picard made the choice to do this? Like he realized that for the betterment of relationships, he would become this being versus you know, basically just like collapsing on a spaceship yeah. and then having it done. I, I I think you're right. Yeah, I think it would have been better. It, it just, it it would have been almost as if it, a sort of sacrifice, you know, maybe it was somehow broadcast on Federation news in real time or I don't know, something like that. I, I Don't ask me to execute it in a way that would not be laughable, but I, I think it, it's a better idea. I think it ties the bow better on this division between synthetics and humans in a way that shows Picard, the diplomat taking the ultimate step, you know, into kind of the unknown for the betterment of what he sees as, you know, a societal change that needs to be made. Yeah. Um, Cam, is there a philosophical debate here that maybe you, you, you talked it through, you, you came to maybe a different conclusion that you had going in, or is there just kind of maybe one of these debates that's uh, really popped out to you? Hmm. Well, why don't you go first? Because I got to think about this. Um, I think I had a pretty clear understanding on some of them, but yeah, what about you? The holographic um, body usage. Uh, it's like, it, 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 I don't know why they had to go there in Star Trek. No good came out of those storylines. It, it really actually kind of diminished all the characters involved, like as far as I'm concerned. You kind of blow the idea of what if they try to address this in a much better way moving forward. Cam, I never want to touch upon this topic in Star Trek ever again. <laughs> I, I think the Salamander Babies one yeah. was one that when I pitched it, I thought we had an interesting quandary to actually delve into. But I think we kind of put a pretty good point on exactly why this one maybe rubs people the wrong way or at least rubs us the wrong way other than cute salamander babies left behind. Like, I think there's actually an interesting case to be made for this being a, uh, a question that should linger the way that some of the other famous Star Trek ones do. Cam, I'm telling you, uh, the season five big mystery of Discovery, it'll all center around salamander babies. <laughs> do you think it's sad that people weep more now for those salamander babies than Tuvix? <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> and on that grim note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Tyler, what are we doing next time? Uh, Cam, we will be ranking the Voyager seasons, uh, just as we've done with TNG, Deep Space Nine, the original series. And I, I just do want to give everyone a heads up. Uh, you might be going to the stores to pick up the Star Trek Lower Decks Blu-ray sets. Uh, Cam and I will receive our copies when we record next week. We'll then watch it. So just, we're about two weeks uh before we get to that, but it is coming. So just be prepared. Not that your viewing habits on the Star Trek Lord Dex Blu-ray needs to center around our coverage. <laughs> we have more exocoms on the horizon. Peanut hamper for the win. That's right. And of course you can find us on the Twitter. I'm at cam V is in Vidian organ stealing. Yay or nay Smith. You can find me at reporton. That's R E P O R T O N N as in Narek. Star Trek's greatest villain? Yay or nay? 
<laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.